Podcast episode 276. I'm here tonight with Jared Schneiderman. What's up, everybody? Philip Dashing. What is up? Alexis Slagle. What's going on, everybody? James Babb. Hello. And special guest, Jacob Hornberger. Hey, good to be hey. here with y'all. Yeah, it's, right. it's great to have you, Jacob. Thank yeah. you. It's, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's an honor for you to uh, come onto our podcast. Um, the honor's all mine. This, this, this looks like a classy show here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, usually we, we talk about grooming and fashion tips and yeah. things like that. Investment, investing. Yeah. <laughs> How are your portfolios doing, guys? It's doing great. <laughs> so, uh, Jacob, what are your favorite recreational drugs? <laughs> oh man uh, let's see let me think about that one uh, that's a got that's got to be the first time i ever asked that question uh, that, was actually, that was actually jim babb's idea for the record what what you can't blame me for that <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah i'm just gonna go go around i, I want to take it over to alex uh, so Jacob, I guess maybe uh, introduce yourself because um, sometimes when I talk to individuals, they don't. Um, they're like, "Oh, Jacob Hornberger, I think I've heard about him." But you've been in the Liberty game for years. I mean, I uh, met you years ago uh, in the Libertarian Party when my dad was involved, like twenty, thirty years ago. So I guess maybe uh, take the time tell us a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, um, and those that don't know about you. Okay. Well, I grew up in Laredo, Texas, on a farm on the Rio Grande. And then after high school there, I went to college at Virginia Military Institute. I got a law degree there, I mean, a BA in economics. Then uh, I got commissioned as an infantry officer, spent eight years in the reserves, then went to law school at the University of Texas, got a law degree, dropped out for a few months to attend infantry school at Fort Benning, waited tables in a restaurant a couple of months and returned to law school and then returned home to Laredo to practice law. And I was a trial attorney. I was in partnership with my dad and I had a active trial business. I, I loved practicing law. I'd wanted to be a lawyer since I was a kid. And then I discovered libertarianism when I was about 28. Just, it was just a totally accidental happenstance and it ended up changing the course of my life. So I, I ended up going to Dallas to practice law, open my own practice there after my dad passed away. And I started participating in a lot of uh, libertarian activities, especially with the Foundation for Economic Education in New York. And after four years in Dallas, they offered me a job as their program director. So after a lot of soul searching, I left the law practice and went to Fee in New York and um, spent two years there, really nice years. And then I decided I wanted to start my own educational foundation. So I did that in 89 out in Denver and that's what I've been doing ever since is, is uh, our mission at FFF, which I should emphasize does not endorse my candidacy, uh, is to present the principled, uncompromising case for libertarianism. And I just love libertarianism. I, I think it's the greatest philosophy in the history of mankind. And then last November, I decided, well, you know, I'm gonna, I want to take these people on, Democrats and Republicans that have destroyed our liberty and our well-being in this country. 
And that means taking them on politically. So I decided to jump in the political arena and, and seek the Libertarian Party presidential nomination. Now, yeah. Um, yeah, Future of Freedom Foundation is excellent. I, I think that was one of my earlier introductions to libertarianism uh, when, when I was in my early 20s, mid 20s. Um, my dad would subscribe and get the, the letters <laughs> every month and I would read them or he'd hand me, oh, there's a good article in here. You should read this about that. And uh, but I guess maybe who were some of your influences early on? What got you, what sparked your interest into libertarianism? Well, first of all, thank you. What you just said is music to my ears. I mean, gosh, that's, it's just very gratifying when I hear stories like that. Uh, the guy that really changed the course of my life was Leonard Reed, who is the founder of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, Reed was one of the most profound writers that you'd ever find in the libertarian movement. Inter interestingly enough, he isn't widely acclaimed. A lot of people don't know about Reed. But Reed's books just spoke to me in a way that I felt like he was just talking to me personally. He's one of the deepest thinkers I've ever seen. and He could write so simply and so succinctly, but so profoundly. So I would put him at the top. And then there's a Ludwig von Mises, who, who for me in economics is the greatest economist who's ever lived. And the way he presented just economics in a regular person activity thing instead of charts and graphs and stuff, it was just phenomenal for me. And, and he was so principled and so uncompromising. I mean, Mises to me is just a giant. He's just heroic. And uh, then there's Henry Hazlitt, who wrote Economics in One Lesson, just phenomenal economics book. Um, anybody who reads Economics in One Lesson will know more economics than 95% of the economics professors around the country. <laughs> and then there's Frederick Bastiat. Uh, Bastiat just is heroic that he, uh, he was a French free market libertarian legislator and he stood for libertarianism, especially free trade. And he, and he stood against the whole country. I mean, he'd been elected to parliament in his district, but his, the entire country was against him on free trade and principles of libertarianism. And he never bent, he never compromised. And so these guys are heroes for me. I mean, this is one of the things that, that, you'll, that you'll notice in my presidential race. I mean, I'm running a campaign based on their inspirations that I, I just reject all this reform stuff that you hear about in the libertarian movement and the libertarian party about let's just reform the welfare warfare state and make it better. Uh, it was people like Reed and Mises and, and Hazlitt and Bastiat that inspired me to say, no, 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 go for liberty which necessarily means making the case for the dismantling of infringements on freedom rather than their reform. Hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Jacob, right now there's, there's been, <clears throat> there's kind of been kind of a talk of this uh, drama that went on, like, was it 20 years ago um, about the, the Harry Brown campaign? And, you know, there's, there's talk going around, like, what's your take on all this? Well, it's one of those things that happens in politics. Sometimes there's political battles that take place, sometimes even inside political parties. Uh, that Brown was, uh, was one of my heroes. When I first discovered libertarianism, uh, I also discovered the hard money movement at about the same time. So I was subscribing to all these hard money newsletters like Harry Brown Special Reports and Howard Ruff's newsletter, Mark Skousen's, uh, I forget what it's called, Strategies and Forecasts of Strategies, I think, uh, the Aiden Sisters. And I was learning a lot of philosophy and libertarianism. By the time I subscribed to all these newsletters, I didn't have any money to invest. I was, you know, it was about my late 20s. And 
So I was getting all of Brown's books. I mean, I read them all and I poured over them. I got his Harry Brown special reports and would study them. And so, and then when we had our five-year anniversary conference, uh, Brown contacted me and said, can I speak at your conference? And I said, yeah, we'll fit you in. And I think that was around 94, 95. So in 2000, when Brown was running for reelection, I got information from somebody in the Pennsylvania Libertarian Party who was a friend of mine said that there were, there were indications that there were things that looked real odd in the Brown campaign with respect to certain entities that they were doing business with. And so all I did was just go and look and, and they looked odd to me too. So I just posted them on the internet and that's all with no commentary or anything. And of course, this is when the internet was first getting going. Well, Brown came after me with the most, the nastiest attack I've ever seen. I mean, just unleashed on me that I was trying to destroy the party, that I was trying to destroy his campaign. And, um, and it was stunning. I mean, because all I had done was just publish this list of entities. And then at the same time, he told everybody in the party hierarchy or certain people in the party hierarchy, don't say anything. Let me do all the talking here. And his campaign too, he says, don't say anything. Well, this made us really suspicious. And so we kept digging and the, the, there was a nasty email exchange or series of, of articles exchanges. And this is what I regret. I, I should never have let myself get dragged into that. It was one of my biggest regrets. But I knew that, that Brown had misled people about me. So that caused me at the national convention to go over there and just throw my hat in the ring uh, because I didn't, I didn't like what he had done. So, of course, you know, he, he defeated me handily. But after that, the Pennsylvania LP people kept digging and they finally found the smoking gun. And that what had happened was that Brown was using, before the nomination, he was using an, the executive director of the party to help him out uh, for remuneration. They were paying him under the table. And all those strange entities or some of the strange entities, they were, they were laundering the money so that they could hide it. And Bill Bradford from Liberty Magazine, the publisher of Liberty Magazine, which was the most prestigious libertarian magazine at the time, might still be, uh, he wrote an article on this that people can just Google called uh, Fraud in the Libertarian Party. And then the, that was the title on the cover of the issue and inside it was Fraud in the Brown Campaign, where he detailed everything that had happened here. Then I, I went ahead and in chapter 21 of my new book, My Passion for Liberty, I uh, detail the whole thing again, and that's on my campaign site. So if people don't want to buy the book, they can go ahead and read it. So the, the, about two years later, but Brown never forgave me for this. I mean, my, my feeling was once they came at this and the LNC, you know, reprimanded the executive director and said this shouldn't happen, my, my feeling was the fight's over, uh, that, that the thing had been uncovered. I'm sure it was going to be cleaned up. It wasn't going to happen again. And... Uh, Two years later, I decided to run for U.S. Senate in Virginia, but the Virginia party hierarchy, who had been closely aligned with the Brown campaign and the executive director, they were so furious at me that they would not lift a finger to help me get on the petition, on the, on the um, ballot. I needed 15,000, I needed 10,000 valid signatures, which meant I needed about 10,000 from all over the state. We, we, we can't just get our, our signatures here in Virginia in one, one area. Well, they wouldn't help me and, and so because they were so mad at me. So I, I went ahead and I got the signatures myself with the help of friends and one professional petition gatherer that helped me mostly in the outlying areas. And we made it. The Secretary of State said that we were the, 
fastest, the earliest people she'd ever seen. And then at that point, I still run it and run it as an LP candidate. I gave it a lot of thought because we could have gotten ballot access. I was convinced I could get ballot access uh, because the Democrats weren't running anybody. Well, as it was, I got 7% as an independent. And I, but I was just too scared. I could go over the, the heads of the party hierarchy and go to the convention and get the nomination, even though they hadn't helped me get the signatures. But I was too afraid that they would sabotage me. And I wanted to run a really good campaign. So I thought, you know, this is, this is going to be bad news if I'm running a campaign and they're putting out negative statements about me in the press. So I just decided to run as an independent. And at that point, I said, you know, with all this negative energy, people believe Brown. I mean, he was a, a, a you know, a heroic figure in the party. And, uh, you know, I was essentially a nobody. And I thought, you know, there's so much negative energy here. It's time for me to just exit the Libertarian Party and go back to practice, I mean, uh, to uh, advancing liberty at FFF. And it was a tough decision because I loved my, my, t my time in the LP. I'd served three terms on the platform committee. I was speaking at about eight or nine LP conventions every year. I mean, I missed it. It was hard to, to walk away. But I figured it was the only thing I could do uh, to, to get my life oriented toward positive energy rather than negative energy. Well, so that, um, was, that was, oh, go ahead, Matt. I was just going to say, uh, we're glad that you're here with the LP in 2020 because yeah, we feel like you bring uh, principle to the race. Well, it's really nice to hear that because I tell you, I'm having the time of my life. I mean, this, is, this race has been a transformative event for me. It brings back all my memories of of speaking at state LP conventions in the 90s, which I loved. And I was a keynote speaker at the 96 convention and just loved it. I mean, I feed off that energy of, of, uh, that is in Libertarian Party members at these conventions. Uh, I've been to 18 state conventions and I just love it. You could feel the electricity in the crowd, the energy. It pumps you up as a speaker. It's sort of like a synergy where you're feeding off each other. I've participated in now 13 presidential debates and those are not easy things, but I really enjoy them. I mean, this has been a really fun <laughs> adventure for me. So what are your thoughts on the Johnny come lately is now, now you've got uh, judge Jim Gray has just announced recently that he's uh, stepping in to, to go for it. And along with Justin Amash, what do you think about those guys coming in now? Well, I think they have to be sort of treated differently because they kind of, they, they've come in for different reasons under different circumstances. Um, Judge Gray says that the reason he came in is because he was supporting uh, Governor Chay or was it Senator Chafee, um, Lincoln yeah, Chafee. Yeah, yeah, fuck Lincoln Chafee. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't catch that. What'd you, I didn't say, I didn't hear what you said. I said, I said fuck Lincoln Chafee. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, I mean, like, I know for a fact after Chafee screwed up, that's when they got Judge Jim Gray's phone number and they tried to corral him in. I, that's exactly what happened. Feel the chafing. Wasn't that going to be the slogan? Or uh... <laughs> Well, it's really strange because Chafee comes into the race from the Democratic Party. He had been the Republican Party, and he has supported such things. And I think he still does the minimum wage, uh, uh, Project Head Start, uh, massive gun control, which he implemented in Rhode Island when he was governor there. Um, and how do these guys get associated with the LP? Where do, well, where do they come from? That's what's fascinating. You see, he comes in and he reads our platform and he says, okay, uh, fiscal responsibility, uh, Iraq war, um, 
couple other things. I'm a libertarian. I'm a libertarian. I, I, I match up with four out of the 40 positions here. <laughs> you know? and, and, and then, then he goes on Kennedy and, and Kennedy says, well, let's oh. talk about this. And he says, no, 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 that's not one of the fourth thing. I want to talk about <laughs> right. the fourth thing. Oh, it was so bad. Oh, no, 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 so no yeah. Oh, so, terrible. So I oh. find it fascinating that Judge Gray would be putting his stock on a guy that supports the minimum wage, supports Project Head Start, uh, and the invasion of Afghanistan. It was like, wow. What does Judge that say Gray, about Judge Gray's principles? Exactly. Exactly. That he feels that this guy should be the representative of this party uh, as a presidential spokesman. Well, then Gray drops out and, 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 and I mean, um, uh, Chafee drops out. And so Gray calls him to commiserate and he tries to talk him to get back in the race. And, and, and this is all from Gray's mouth. So Gray's staff and, and um, Chafee says, no, no, no. I'm not, the, the party is, is just too radical for me. So, which means too libertarian. So, so then <laughs> Gray's, I mean, Chafee's staff talks Gray into taking his place. And, <laughs> and so Gray, Gray's reasoning for, he says, I, I struggled with it. I called some people. I called um, Larry Sharp. And I finally said, okay, to the staff. So here you have a guy that's running for president because Lincoln Chafee's staff convinced him to run. That's embarrassing. I mean, it, it really is. I'm running for president because I want a free society. I want to live in a free society. I want everyone to live in a free society, not because somebody's staff uh, convinced me to do so. Now, now, Justin Amash's situation is totally different, or at least somewhat different. He told Reason Magazine that he just hadn't had time to make a decision on this, that he, you know, there are a lot of things in Congress and he hadn't had time to talk to his wife about it. Yeah. And, uh, that the coronavirus crisis hit. And so he finally is getting around to announce, to deciding to form an exploratory committee to decide whether he should really run. Well, Amash has forgotten something significant. And that is that he was at Freedom Fest last July, July, 2019. Now Freedom Fest, if y'all don't, are not familiar with it, is a giant libertarian conservative um, conference. It's put on by Mark Skousen in Las Vegas every July. And it consists of conservatives, libertarian-leaning conservatives, or what I call hybrids, and then libertarians. Well, Amash was there, and I was there, and he, had, he was on three panels. And the entire buzz in the convention, in the conference, was that Amash was going to run for, the, for president. And, uh, and then even on the stage, Mark Skousen, in one of the panel discussions with Amash, he, was, he had three panel discussions said, hey, well, I hear that there might be somebody here that wants to announce for president. And he looks over at Amash and smiles, and Amash smiles back. So this notion that he hasn't had time to think about this is, is kind of faulty, uh, because he has had time, he's been thinking about it since last July. My hunch is that the reason that he delayed till this minute is that there's this custom in the party to do last-minute ambushes, some of which have been in, uh, uh, successful where people go through the whole debate process. Remember I told you I've been to, through about 13 debates and those are grueling. People are challenging your positions. You got moderators hitting you with questions. Everybody's waiting for you to make a mistake and they're going to pounce. Well, he does this ambush where he announces three weeks before the convention. And I don't think he's even formally announced yet. 
but he's essentially in the race, uh, where he misses all these conventions, where he just says, hey, come on in. I don't need to do these conventions. Coronate me. And, and of course, there's this tsunami of publicity with all the mainstream media. And then he's got Reason Magazine doing this whole thing of, of, of uh, uh, interviews and articles. And, and then he's got the Cato Institute, people saying, oh, Amash is our guy, because he's a reform-oriented libertarian conservative, which is what they love. He's, he's like the, the example of that. Well, my position is, is that, you know, nobody should be better than anyone else. You, you come in and you go through this process that's our custom, these, these, uh, these conferences. And the reason he, I mean, these debates, the reason he wants to avoid these debates is because he doesn't want his conservative positions challenged. He wants just this whole spate of publicity. Hey, I got on MSNBC, I got this. You know, publicity, 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 without regard to what the publicity is all about. So I've been taking him on, on on my campaign website in a video series saying, let's look at some of his of his positions. And his supporters are upset at me, saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing Well, because your man sneaked into this thing without debating. He he it turns out he disclosed that he secretly suspended his congressional race in February, mid-February. Well, for mid-February, he could have announced, I went to 10 conventions between mid-February and mid-March when the thing came crashing down. He could have gone to those conventions. Uh, he could have participated in the debates. At some Wouldn't of there be a lot of uh, difficult questions he might have had to face? Tremendously <laughs> difficult. But Michigan, uh, when he, they personally invited him to come up to their libertarian convention, and he even won second place in the straw poll, even though he wasn't even there. I mean, like, that's how much he was, a pre he was like desperately wanted, and he still chose not to show up. Was that the online convention? Um, I wasn't, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it was online or not, but I'm I know almost, he didn't attend. I'm almost certain it was. And look, okay. we all know the lockdown. He's at home like everybody else. That, okay, in, in regular times, he could say, well, I had a meeting to attend or congressional vote. He's in his home. All he's got to do with a little click of the mouse is go on, on the, the Michigan LP site. But here's something more uh, significant that I've pointed out. To go to these state conventions, you don't have to be a candidate. You don't have to be a, uh, a member of the party. I mean, I, I went to like eight or nine conventions last year and gave a speech called Adhering to Principle is Everything. And people were very nice. I said, Jacob, come on, we'll give you 10 minutes. That'd be awesome. I interacted with LP members. I wouldn't run in for anything. I just had a good time at these conventions. They were bringing back memories for me. Well, Amash could have gone to these state conventions starting in January. He didn't have to be a candidate. He could have contacted the state party and said, hey, I'm a sitting congressman. I'd like to come and give a talk at your convention. They would have eaten it up. It would have meant publicity, membership for the party, new people oh, coming in. Not one single convention did he attend. Why? I mean, like, we don't, we don't have cooties in this party. <laughs> hey, can I read you one of his tweets and have you comment on this, Jacob? I found sure. this somewhat interesting. This was from March 24th. He said, congressional leaders are wasting time on slow, convoluted proposals. Americans need fast, direct relief. Start getting monthly checks to people now. What is that? What did he what do you think he meant by that? And what would be the libertarian response to that? Well, he meant a welfare check. I mean, it's, it's no different from Andrew Yang's proposal from uh, the Democratic Party, that he wants to send everybody a check. And if he's made the nominee, make no mistake about it, he's going to go out among the American people and said, I wanted to give you this. 
I mean, this is the way Democrats and Republicans have always run their races. They, it's candy. It's political candy. It's like dictators in Latin America do it. I'm giving you free this and free that and free this and free that. But what he never, um, never talks about is where the money's coming from. And, and the, the libertarian position is government is not in the business of helping people out. I mean, the, the straight libertarian position is everybody keeps everything they earn, no income tax, no IRS, and then charity is 100% voluntary. You keep everything you earn. That's, that was our heritage in this country. So when Amash says that he's being good by giving everybody $1,200, what he blocks out of his mind is that that money is being stolen from people by the Internal Revenue Service. Because that, that's where government gets its money. You know, this notion is that Uncle Sam is a rich uncle that, boy, has got unbelievable amounts of money. Well, to, to be fair, Jacob, isn't that money just being printed? Well, I was going to get to that. That, that. That's just a different form of taxation. Yeah. But, I mean, straight, the, the, is, as far as the government just giving out money, it has to get it from somebody. This is a broke government. It doesn't have $2 trillion or $4 trillion hidden under the bed. We know it's, it's charged up $23 trillion of debt. It's, it's uh, President Trump before the crisis was spending $4 trillion when, there's, when they're bringing in $3 trillion in, in taxes. I mean, he's spending more money than Hillary Clinton, I think, would have spent. But now this $2 trillion and then another $2 trillion, what they're doing is they're not taxing the American people directly through the Internal Revenue Service. I think they know what would happen to them if they did that. I mean, they'd be tarred and feathered. Um, including Amash. I mean, Amash, this money is not free that he's promising everybody. What they're doing is just charging everybody's credit card by borrowing that money and adding it not to the federal government's debt. And, and ultimately, it is the taxpayers who are responsible for that debt. Uh, I mean, you've got an average taxpayer bill right now uh, of, on the national debt of $200,000 per taxpayer. Uh, and, and, and make no mistake about it, every taxpayer is liable for the, his proportionate share of this debt. So what are they doing? Well, they've now got the Federal Reserve in this thing to start liquidating this debt with newly printed money so that, that uh, they can tell Americans, oh, this isn't really going to cost you. But now we're looking at inflation and maybe even hyperinflation around the corner where they, they, they've done this for decades, both Democrats and Republicans. They debase people's currency. That's why we don't have even silver dollars in circulation anymore, or silver quarters or silver dimes. They destroyed the, what was the finest monetary system in history. So when you put all this together, this notion of, of uh, giving out free money is, is unbelievable. And to sell that as a libertarian position and go out on the campaign trail and say, this is what libertarians stand for, is absolutely, to me, an anathema. Yeah, I was going to say, um, there's been some recent talk of, you know, you've had some criticisms from with, I would say, even with some of your supporters about how you kind of lead the charge with about welfare and welfareism being one of your, your main points when, you know, it seems to be like more money is spent on the warfare state. So what, what would you say to people that, that, that criticism? I've been a leader in the fight against the warfare state. My position is more libertarian than anybody in this race with respect to the warfare state. I'm just saying that there are two halves or two flip sides of the same coin. If we want a free society, it's not enough to just end uh, the, the warfare state. 
you've got to end the welfare state too. I mean, the IRS is one of the most vicious, brutal agencies in U.S. history. I mean, look what happened with Erwin Schiff. They killed the guy. I mean, he had cancer and, and he's sitting in the federal penitentiary just because he opposed income taxation. They wouldn't let him out when he was dying. Look what the IRS has done to, to people in terms of audits and harassment and criminal prosecutions and attachments and garnishments and liens. It's horrible. But it's important to focus on that aspect of liberty. This notion where I've been criticized, oh, Jacob, you want to abolish Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and education grants and foreign aid to dictators. It really shows you what an, a lack of compassion you have. Are you kidding me? You call the Internal Revenue Service caring and compassionate? That's what, how you get your caring and compassionate? Bull. That's not caring and compassionate at all. Caring and compassionate is you keep everything, what you earn, and then you decide what to do with it. Now, on the warfare state side of this, nobody's harder core than me. I say, number one, and, and, I, and I criticize both Republicans and Democrats on this. I mean, look at Republicans. They claim to be pro-life with respect to the, uh, the rights of the unborn child. And yet they inflict for decades death and destruction on foreigners who, whose regime has never invaded the United States, including children. They killed hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children in the 90s with their sanctions regime. They're killing people in Iran today with their sanctions regime. I, I call sanctions what, the, the banality of evil, Hannah Arendt's term, for, the, for good people engaging in evil actions with good intentions. Uh, so bring, I would bring all the troops home from everywhere, everywhere, Korea, um, Europe, World War II is over, Middle East, Afghanistan, Africa, Latin America, bring them all home and don't stop there, discharge them. As soon as they land on American shores, discharge them in the private sector. They're not necessary because we don't need an intervention in, uh, interventionist government. So you end all foreign interventionism. You, you abandon all foreign military bases, including Guantanamo belongs to Cuba, doesn't belong to the United States. And then you discharge all those uh, and soldiers. So think of the money that's going to save, plus the positive effect in the economy with soldiers that are now producing instead of consuming tax wealth. But three, let's go a step further. You start downsizing the military here at home. You don't need the, all these military bases and all this stuff here. Uh, you know, in the 1800s, you needed a fort to protect a community from the Native American attacks. There is no reasonable possibility of an invasion of the United States in the foreseeable future. No nation state's got the military capability, the money, the resources, the personnel, the equipment. You can't cross an ocean and invade and conquer the United States. Four, and this is what separates me out from everybody in this race, because as far as I know, no one else has called for the dismantling of it. Well, Kokesh calls for the whole dismantling of the whole federal government, but I want to dismantle <laughs> the whole national... I want to dismantle the national security state part of the government. The CIA, which Justin Amash supports because on his congressional website, he actually sends children to the website of the CIA to learn about the CIA, to, to play games over there on that site. I consider the CIA the most evil organization in U.S. history. Yes. I, I would dismantle the NSA. No reform. You see, this is, this is what separates me out from the reformers. No reform. 
dismantled the Pentagon and the national security establishment. This is a totalitarian form of governmental structure. I want to restore a limited government republic with just a basic fundamental um, military that protects the United States from an invasion and can marshal everybody together if there ever was an invasion. I want a foreign policy like that of Switzerland, where the government is 100% oriented to defense uh, uh, of this country, and that's it. Yes. So, um, I know a another criticism off that, I know uh, Larry Sharp has said that, well, if you were to dismiss the soldiers when you bring them back home, that would lead to mass amounts of suicides of soldiers. Oh, that what? is for goddamn dick. That is the most what? ridiculous fucking shit I've ever heard as a veteran. So, he, said that's, <laughs> and, he said something along the lines that that's not very pro-life if you want to just dismiss these people and let them kill themselves or something. That like is that awful. Lines. That Wait, is the I, worst thing. That is I thought they're awful. killing themselves right now like 21 every day or something. 22, yeah, like an right? hour or something like that. So, yeah. and, and, but, but firing them will cause even more suicides than what we're already getting? That doesn't make any sense, but yeah, he just I, made that remark the other day. I didn't wow. know he said it, and, I, and, and I'll take your wow. word for it. It's, that's ridiculous. People commit suicides for reasons that they're over there killing people that I think deep down they know they shouldn't be killing. You know, the, the average soldier is not like a serial killer. A serial killer has submerged his conscience so deeply that he can go out and kill and it just doesn't bother him. The average soldier's not like that. He's a, he's a Christian or he's a Jew or Muslim. He's very devout. He's got a family. He goes to church or to synagogue or to, you know, whatever. And so when you put these people in a position of killing people that don't deserve to be killed, how can that not work on your conscience? I, I don't sure. think these suicides are post-traumatic stress disorder, at least not all of them. It's guilt. It's, it's the guilt of having killed people. I mean, how can that not affect the human being? And then they come back and, and you know, the, there's very limited counseling and therapy and people are thanking them. Thank you for going over there and killing those people. That to me is the, the, the biggest cause of a suicide is, is massive, deep-seated yes. guilt, unresolved guilt. But the idea that soldiers are discharged is going to cause them to commit suicide. I mean, Look at World War II or World War I. As soon as the war is over, you discharge soldiers into the private sector. I don't remember any mass suicides there. I thought they were like kissing women in, in, uh, like in the port. Weren't there like famous photos of like the yeah. war's over and people are throwing their hats in the air and celebrating like it was the happiest day of their life oh, to not have to yeah, be in the yeah. military anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. He cited, yeah. And he it's a tremendous. Larry, I was going to say, Larry cited uh, the statistics of vietnam war them coming home and there was a mass amount of people killing themselves after they got discharged from the military well, well they weren't that they were drafted first off i mean what a ignorant ignoramus of history yeah so what is and the Jacob, alternative i guess just keep yeah. kicking the can down the road and just keep these people keep sending more people over yeah, like even if, even if I mean, even if that point. is the case yeah thanks but yeah the best even thing if, we could ever do for veterans is stop creating so many right exactly, exactly. I mean, even if it was the case that this is what happens, I mean, you know, better to just rip the Band-Aid off now than just drag more and more and more and more people into it. It just doesn't make any sense. No, Jacob, can, Jacob, can you speak of, um, you, you mentioned earlier, you, you were a veteran, you studied at VMI. Uh, when was that about? How did you come about this? And you talk about like how things weigh on your conscience. Weren't you like a conscientious objector during well, that time period? No, I, well, actually, my evolution was kind of interesting. That was it. Like, yeah, when did you come about that? That your time in the service 
your time in the service and, and later on, like kind of like, it seems like it weighed on your conscience. Uh, uh, well, sort of, because this was before I discovered libertarianism. I was 28 when I discovered libertarianism. Uh, so when trying to decide whether to go to where to go to college, this was in, I graduated from high school in 68. Well, Vietnam was really getting hot in 68 and the draft was going hot and heavy. And so my dad said, I think you really ought to go to VMI. You get a good education and you, you, you learn how to, how to be a fighter because the likelihood is you're going to go to Vietnam. And he says, there are so many dumb officers in the army. He had served in world war II, And he says, you really want to be an officer. And uh, well, I resisted that. I said, no, I want to go to Princeton. That, that's my first choice. And, my, and um, so I applied to Princeton. I didn't get in. And so I could have gone to the university of Texas, but I said, nah, I'll take his advice. And I, and I went to VMI and I, and I, I, I got a good education at VMI, but I just didn't fit in with this regimented, envi regimented environment. I mean, it, you know, people ask me, did you get a good education at VMI? And I said, I often say, well, yeah, I really did. And it helped me get into law school. I got an excellent education. But I also learned from a libertarian standpoint what it's like to live in a socialist, fascist, totalitarian society. <laughs> because everybody's <laughs> in the core there. And the, right. the, the president of the university was called the superintendent, was a Marine general at the height of the <laughs> Vietnam War, uh, who thought that college life should be like a you know, version of Marine boot camp at Paris Island. So <laughs> it, it was just, I mean, you can't imagine. You talk about the state taking care of you. We, that we had to be in bed at taps at, at night. <laughs> right. And, and we had to, <laughs> we were marched down to supper and we all ate supper together that was served to us. And we, you know, we, they knew where we were every time. We could not wear civilian clothes in, in the county. We had to wear a uniform. It's kind of like prison. It was exactly Pretty much, like Jim. Pretty much. I'm telling like you, it. it was like, it was exactly <laughs> like prison. And it was weird is that there were kind of like bars on the windows. So it's like, whoa. <laughs> Wow. Uh, <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't get along too well with the, the military um, establishment there, and they knew it with, with me. Uh, they, um, they could tell. But you see, when my first two years, I, I mean, I grew up with the Vietnam War and the anti-communist stuff and all that. And my, my dad was a Democrat, but he was a conservative Democrat. He believed in the Vietnam War. So you, you get indoctrinated mostly like what, what your parents believe. So my first two years there, I, I was like gung-ho. I mean, I, you know, I mean, in terms of what we needed to do to fulfill military requirements, I mean, I, I could, I could do whatever they did. I, I was in Rangers, for example, I was one of the VMI Rangers. Well, Rangers is a tough unit. I mean, you got to know all aspects of infantry tactics to be a Ranger and you got to be in perfect shape. But all of a sudden, and, and all this time I'm thinking I'm going to have to go to Vietnam. Um, well, my junior year, um, no, it was my senior year. Nixon starts pulling the troops out of, of Vietnam. It's like, oh my gosh, what's happening here? And because um, I'd had this specter of Vietnam for three and a half years. And so they come into my military science class one afternoon or one morning and the a tactical officer, one of the military officers there says, we're taking volunteers, anybody that wants to give up your two year active duty commitment for an eight year reserve commitment, raise your hand. Oh, wow. And your hand went right up. Oh, I almost blew it out of socket. <laughs> <laughs> like dislocated. Oh, yeah. Sign me up, man. So it was, Get me the it fuck was, out of here. Oh, yeah. 
So it was yeah. the greatest thing, man. I, and, and then uh, here's, the, here's the greatest part. They forget. And I had to go to Fort Benning for infantry <laughs> school, was, which was just a real joy for three months there, you know. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> but, but then the funny part is they forget about me. And, and I, I'm in a control group for seven years. No, six years. I'm in a, what's called a control group. They just forgot about me. I wasn't getting summer camp assignments. I didn't go to monthly meetings. It was just awesome. And all of a sudden, my seventh year, I get orders from the Pentagon that I'm, I'm ordered to report to the, to the local quartermaster unit in Laredo for my monthly meetings and my two-week summer deal. And I mean, I was like stunned. I had almost gotten through the friggin' eight-year commitment. So I wrote the Pentagon and I said, look, you can't do this to me. I'm a combat officer and being put with a combat support unit is humiliating. Uh, and, and I, this is not going to work. And I, you can assign me to a combat unit, but not a combat support unit. Well, of course there are no combat units in Laredo. Uh, well, they, they said permit de denied. And so there I went for, for, you know, a year there in Laredo with my long hair wig going to my stupid monthly meetings. And ironically, a friend of mine from elementary and junior high and high school, he, he had gone to A&M. He got orders at the same time. So we would just take our television sets in there and watch TV for the weekend. And <laughs> then at the end of that year, this is really funny. I wrote the Pentagon again and I said, I want you to know this has been a very rewarding experience for me. <laughs> And, but I, I really hate to deny somebody else this opportunity. I'd like out. And they, they granted it. They said, okay. Oh, it's genius. So my eighth year, I was home free and then I got my discharge and I was a happy man when I got that discharge. See, that's oh, awesome. Man. And, uh, Jacob, that's the thing, and and what Phil was talking about with Larry, if if that is true, what he said, he has a complete disconnect from the veteran experience and understanding what it is, uh, veterans, the things you see. I'm a lucky vet. I did the eight years in the Air Force, but I, I saw the wastefulness. I saw the I was stationed over in England for two years. I was stationed over in Korea twice. I mean, it's a total, it's a total. I, it's just wastefulness. It's awful just to maintain empire. And then my dad came into the libertarianism around in the late nineties and he's a Vietnam veteran and the things you speak of, I mean, it, this is the things that Americans and, and need to hear and, and understand that. And, and your anti-war video that you just put out that campaign ad, that was awesome, by the way, just Tell us about that. Props on that. That was amazing. That's an amazing campaign video. Can you tell us about that, Jacob? Yeah, I owe it all to my, well, let me first say something about, um, about what's your name again? Oh, Alex. Alex. Alex, Alex. Let me say yeah. something. I want to see if you would agree with me on this. You, you served how many years in the Air Force? Eight years. It was before the Iraq invasion, a couple months after the Afghanistan debacle. Okay. Here, here is the, the concept of, that VMI promoted since its founding, which I really love about VMI. And uh, it was the concept of the citizen soldier that instead of having these massive military establishments, which our, our ancestors totally opposed, I mean, you can, you can see the antipathy they had by just doing standing armies, American ancestors. And, a, and a militia, and a militia, a militia. Yes, yes, a well-trained, self-trained militia, not a government militia, but just that citizens are well-trained by themselves. Now, right now, I haven't been in the service for decades, 
I have no doubts that if this country was invaded, I would be the first one to volunteer, despite my age. I could easily fire an M16. I could easily lead men into battle or women. And that those skills don't go away that you learned in the military. And so that's what I foresee is a nation. I mean, you, you take guys in the 82nd Airborne Division. They're not going to forget how to jump out of a plane. You know? <laughs> but, uh, I mean, so you have this entire nation, which right now would be composed of a lot of veterans, that if anybody invaded, every one of them would rush and say, let's all join up and stop these invaders, because then now you got something to fight for. Uh, right. But that's what I'm saying is a citizen soldier nation is your best, your best nation. Exactly. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah, because you don't forget your skills, those eight years in the Air Force. <laughs> right. If anything, like they've trained me to basically hate the government even more <laughs> and then gave me the skills and ability to, you know, <laughs> so yeah, it's. And yeah, notice he's right. got a fine Hawaiian right. shirt on. Notice that yeah. Alexander has some of the <laughs> finest Hawaiian shirts of anyone I know. There, yes. Hawaiian shirts ready for the luau, Jim. You got to always be ready to luau. The big luau. Well, okay, about the video. Uh, oh, I'm so proud of that video. I just can't tell you. I love that video. And, and the guy responsible is my campaign manager, Jake Porter out of the Iowa LP. He's undoubtedly the, the greatest political strategist in, in this party and maybe in this country. I would put him up against uh, the Trump machine and the Biden machine any day of the week. And, um, you know, we've, we've been very fortunate so far. I've won I don't know, four or five primary elections. I've won three caucuses. I've won about eight or nine straw polls in states all across the country, including the big ones like, like California and Florida and uh, some of the small ones like Arkansas. But it's all Jake. I mean, and, and the fact that people like this, this message I'm putting out, it doesn't have anything to do with me. It's this, this message of principle. So Jake put together this ad. He, he contracted with a professional producer of films and they put together this advertisement, this anti-war advertisement, and I just love it. It's nice to get y'all's feedback because I'm just so pleased with this thing. Uh, for nice. anybody that wants to see it, just come to jacobforliberty.com. It's right there on the home page. Nice. You'll have to we'll, put that uh, one in the show notes. I, I posted it, Jacob, but yeah, we'll definitely post that up in uh, Punk Rock Libertarians because it's a powerful message. Um, so yeah, it's, it's awesome. Kudos to you for putting that up. Thank you. So, Jacob, what are your thoughts on this, uh, what they're doing with the convention now, how it's um, apparently been uh, delayed until July and they don't have a location yet? What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I go I flow with the tide. I mean, it doesn't, you know, whatever the LNC uh, decides, we, we will adjust. But mm. we've done a lot of soul searching on this thing, Jake and I have, and our campaign team, and we've, we've deliberated about it. We've talked about it. And we've finally come to the conclusion that the best thing to do would be to have an online convention right now at the end of May or right about the end of May. And, and our, our thinking is, is like this, that for one thing, you don't want to risk the lives of people. I mean, it would be just a disaster. It'd be a tragedy if we had a, a in-person convention and one or two or three people died from this because they attended the convention because they were so dedicated that they wanted to come. I mean, imagine the mourning period that would go into that and not to mention the bad PR, of course. Uh, 
And then the other thing is that if we wait till July, the, there's a good possibility we miss ballot access in many sure. states. I mean, that was one of the reasons for having the convention early, to have a presidential candidate that is on the, they can get on the ballot in these states that are questionable. And then finally, you know, starting a campaign, a Libertarian Party presidential campaign in July, which could even be delayed again. I mean, we don't know how this coronavirus crisis is going to do. Mm -hmm. uh, then all of a sudden you may be looking into August with a campaign. Well, that doesn't provide enough time for an LP candidate to run for president. Sure. Uh, so for those reasons, we've come out on the side of let's have this vote now. Let's have the convention now. Um, and uh, whatever the delegates choose at that point, we're ready to live with that. Gotcha. Can they even do that under the current bylaws or does no, it, like, what can. is the mechanism? Do they have to actually go and vote on something first yes. and then allow that? Well, there's, they, they've talked about the need to have what they call a rump convention where they have this little mock convention and they call it to order and then they convert it to an online convention, which is fraught with difficulty because you know, anybody could show up at that. Somebody could show up with, you know, a candidate could show up with 50 of his friends and say, we reject that idea. We now move to nominate X person to be the presidential nominee. So it means that each candidate would have to send down their, as many supporters would be willing to risk their lives. And might as well just have a convention at that point. Right. I mean, <laughs> well, right, right. And, and then, you know, but it's not fair because you haven't advertised it as a convention. The only people would be showing up, so that's fraught with difficulty. Now, there's, there's some people that are interpreting, the whole thing relies on this Robert's Rules of Order, which the bylaws incorporate. And one group says that Robert Rules of Order do not permit an online convention and therefore you can't do it. Well, I heard lately that Robert's, the people who put out Robert's Rules of Order say, no, that's, not, that's a misinterpretation. Robert's Rules of Orders do permit an online convention under these kind of circumstances. And then the final thing is that I don't think any court in the land is going to question the, uh, a judgment of the party to just go to an online convention. If there has to be litigation, I mean, any judge in the land is going to say, well, that, was, that would be much better than risking their people's lives with a, with, uh, with an online, with a personal convention. And, and all courts are courts, not only courts of law, but courts of equity. And a court of equity can do justice. And so my feeling is, take the risk of, of the online convention. If somebody sues and says, this is illegal, litigate it. I don't think they have a snowball's chance in Hades to win that kind of a lawsuit. Well, I mean, they do run that risk of the other parties being vindictive and doing that and hold, pushing us up in some type of court date or some type of court battle that probably we don't know if we can afford as a party. Could we afford that? Could we, months of litigation and depending on what kind of judge you get, they might be like, well, the law stipulates you didn't follow your bylaws, so you lost all your ballot access. So it's like you run the risk of like, well, I mean, I haven't heard what you just said about Robert's Rules coming out saying that they allow uh, an online convention, but for everything I've been heard through the, you know, through the whole process is that we can lose more states by doing an online convention than we could if we waited past some of these deadlines, which might add the LNC is already negotiating and already fighting battles with the states that would, like, they would lose ballot access that's already being handled. And that, I don't that, even know how ballot access could possibly work during a lockdown anyway. I mean, Pennsylvania sometimes is, I don't know what it's currently, but in the past they've required tens of thousands of signatures. And 
what are you supposed to stand on a street corner now and, and stay 12 feet away from people while you, while you beg them to sign your stupid form? Yeah, that's yeah. what we're fighting in Jim. Maryland. Exactly. This was the thing at the LP convention, and that was probably the last convention that, Jacob, you were able to get to. Um, but, yeah, we're dealing with that here in Maryland because we lost ballot access. So there's a lawsuit like, well, during this COVID lockdown, like, how do you expect us to get those signatures in time? It was, it was, it was dumb and ridiculous before, and now it's yeah. like now, uh, it's even worse. now it's impossible. You've gone from just blatantly unfair and, and horrible to impossible. Well, from what I understand, the court in Illinois put us on the ballot because of these extraordinary circumstances and waived all the ballot access restrictions. Um, So why not do that every year in every state? Yeah, Yeah, it's it's one big protection racket. I mean, that's all ballot access is to protect to protect Democrats and Republicans from competition. Uh, but I, I mean, I agree with y'all. There's always, I mean, there's risks any way you go. It's, it's, it, there's not a, it's not a perfect solution either, either way. Uh, I just say that if you're going to balance the risks, you're better off taking the risk of the earlier convention where you protect the lives of people and you have a lot of people, a lot of, I mean, the presidential candidate has got a lot of time to campaign. I mean, let's face it, this campaign's going to orient a lot of uh, toward online activity. I mean, I can't see there's going to be big rallies and groups and stuff to go speak to, and uh, which I miss because I love that energy of the crowd. But we have shifted to all our stuff online. We didn't skip a beat, man. We're doing these kind of things, podcasts, video presentations, articles, uh, uh, you know, all kinds of these like the anti-war video. So if we win this nomination, we are good to go against Trump and Biden right at day one. <laughs> yeah, here, here. Yeah. What would be, where would be, if you got a chance to, I mean, let's be realistic, there, there would never risk the, her humiliation by being on stage with you. Uh, but let's just say <laughs> yes. in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, a fantasy world, what would you, if you could confront Biden and or Trump, like where would, like how would you, where would you approach it? How would you go after them? What would be their, their vulnerabilities? I would go after them for their morally corrupt philosophy that kills innocent people and has been killing innocent people all over the world for decades. I mean, they're no different. Biden and Trump are cut out of the same cloth. And I've been saying that about these Republicans and Democrats for decades. It's one party divided into two wings, the welfare warfare party. And I would start out by the, by the people, the innocent people they have killed, the massive a death and, and suffering they've inflicted around the world and the Middle East, Afghanistan, Latin America with their regime change operations, and today with their sanctions. I mean, just it, what they're doing to the people of Iran is so morally abominable that it just it shocks the conscience. It shocks my conscience. What they did to the, the Iraqi people with both their invasions and their, their sanctions is just horrendous. So I, I, take it, I take the battle right to them on a moral case and then I'd take the battle to him on the drug war, which I consider the most, one of the most deadly, destructive, and racially bigoted government programs in history. I mean, the penitentiaries are filled with black men because this war is Jim Crow. There's no, there's no better name for it than Jim Crow. Uh, and and the, the black community has paid the biggest price. And so Biden, Biden acts like he's got the black vote locked up. 
I'd go after that black boat big time. And I did it in North Carolina when I was campaigning for the primary in North Carolina. And I was making connections with a lot of African-Americans there. A African-American reporter for a black newspaper there wrote a column saying, I want everybody to look at Jacob Hornberger's campaign because even though I'm a leftist, I am considering voting for him and I'm exhorting all my followers, all my readers to do the same thing. And he had a detailed account of how I was waging this war against this, this bigoted drug war. Uh, immigration controls, I'd go after them for that. I mean, they have brought death and suffering to countless people. I, I grew up on the border. I've seen this death and suffering firsthand. Uh, there's, a, there's a picture on the internet just recently of a man and his three-year-old daughter dead on the shores of the Rio Grande, along with their police state that they have, the, the highway checkpoints. I mean, if you've never been to the American Southwest, you don't know what a police state is. Highway checkpoints for people that have never gone into Mexico, roving border patrol checkpoints that start, stop whoever they want, boarding of Greyhound buses, trespasses on the ranches and farms, or my farm. I mean, I, I have firsthand experience with this. We hired illegal immigrants. We were on the Rio Grande. We, we pumped out of the river to, to, to water our crops and orange trees and stuff. Um, and the Border Patrol could come onto our farm whenever it wanted. And they, they, if we didn't give them a key to our lock at the front gate on the, on the main highway, they would shoot it off. Uh, wow. that, that's the tyranny that we live under, the, the, the imminent domain. So there's three, and then I take them on for what they've done to, to young people of this country with their beloved welfare state, their fake compassion, their, their fake uh, caring of people. The $2 trillion that is taken out of young people's pockets for Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, why can't that $2 trillion remain in their pockets? Why can't they give their money to their parents and grandparents and other people in need? and eliminate the middleman because what they're saying is younger people can't be trusted with freedom. They're a bad people. And I'm going to go after them big time on that. I say younger people can be trusted with freedom and with their own money and leave that $2 trillion in their pockets to do with what they will. And they would do the right thing rather than use the internal revenue service. So those are the four, four of the big things I'd go after them on. Eliminate the middleman. Fuck yeah. <laughs> what about, um, you know, yeah. I'd like you to, maybe you could talk more about immigration because I, like I heard Tom Woods the other day and he was talking to somebody and he was, you know, you could tell that he knows what the libertarian position on borders are, but yet he's kind of afraid to criticize the right too much and the people that think we still need to have a border control. What is the libertarian position on human migration? There is only one position. And you often hear in the Libertarian Movement and the Libertarian Party that there's two positions. There are no two positions. The libertarian philosophy is a, an exquisite, beautiful philosophy. And part of that beauty is its internal consistency. I mean, it's like a, like a Beethoven symphony. It really is just this beautiful philosophy. So you're not going to have a philosophy this exquisite that's going to embrace two opposite positions. You know, as Ayn Rand would say, when you find yourself embracing opposites, check your premises. And so this Ooh, notion whoa. open borders and control borders can, are both libertarian positions is ridiculous. It's like saying drug laws and not drug laws is a libertarian position. The libertarian position, the core principle of libertarianism is the non-aggression principle. You have a right to 
live your life any way you want as long as you're not in initiating force or fraud against someone else. So no murder, no rape, no stealing, et cetera. When you, when you cross a political border, you're not violating anyone's rights. I mean, every day people cross from Maryland into Virginia, they, they cross the river there. They're not violating anybody's rights by crossing that, that border. Uh, we we right. cross county borders every day. Nobody's rights are violated. So you, when you cross the Rio Grande, uh, like in Laredo, Laredo and Nuevo Laredo are one great big metropolitan area separated by a river. When you cross the International Bridge, you're one of them, you haven't, you haven't violated anybody's rights. And so to have this massive apparatus that initiates force against people for crossing a border is the antithesis of libertarianism. I mean, you're, you're actually using force against somebody that is just engaged in a purely peaceful act. Normally, just going up north and trying to get a job, sustain their life, send a little money back to the family, accumulate a little bit of wealth, and then return to Mexico or wherever, come back again the following year. Uh, instead, you have this massive socialist apparatus. And this is what's so ironic. You've got libertarians supporting socialism. Because that's what the immigration apparatus is. It's central planning. They decide how many immigrants, how many immigrants from each country, the credentials, the qualifications. <laughs> this is classic central planning. And central planning, as Ludwig von Mises said, always produces planned chaos. So you have this big backlog of people at the border that want to come in and work. You've got strawberry fields in the United States rotting because they don't have enough workers. This is classic socialism, planned chaos. And then you get a police state with it, too. You see, because if you just have a sign that says, do not enter without permission, everybody ignores it. That's where the enforcement comes in. So you have the spectacle of libertarians supporting a police state. I mean, this is what's so ironic. Impossible. There's only one solution to this, and that's open borders, free trade, open immigration, free movements of goods, services, and people across borders. Nobody's got to change their citizenship. Mexicans can come up here. They can work, whatever, retain their citizenship return to their country, come back again, you end up with all, without any of the death, the suffering, the police state. It's the only philosophy that is consistent with, with religion, morality, ethics, and economic prosperity. What's not to like? Right on. Amen. I think that's yeah. why I've always been a fan of the Future Freedom Foundation and you, uh, you know, because you're, you're, you stick with that consistency and I mean, I, I, years ago, when I first started learning about libertarianism, somebody turned me on to the, to the FFF booklet. You know, they started sending me articles. Like, I couldn't, I didn't, wasn't able to learn anything until they invented the internet. And luckily, you were pretty early in there, like, with the internet. And so I'd be like, well, I don't know. I thought we needed government schools. Really? Like, and then, like, you could, that, like, somebody, like, nope, here's the breakdown. Like, oh, okay. You know, and, and, and it made sense. They're like, wait, I thought we needed to have a this. Uh, nope, here's the breakdown. Like, oh, okay, makes sense. Makes sense, makes sense. Um, so, you know, what started as like a hodgepodge of, of like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. Like it was able to coagulate into a cohesive philosophy. And I'm like, yep, I'm in. I'm totally in. And, and I've been in ever since. But like, what if it had been like, well, we want some liberty here, but not over there. And uh, non-aggression here, but, uh, but if you're brown or Mexican, then yes. Or it, it, I would have just been like, eh, later, you know. <laughs> but, uh, 
I just think that's, you know, one of the great things that you've been bringing to the libertarian community for so many years. Yeah, look at Alex has, has the booklets. I got, I got all my Future of Freedom booklets here. <laughs> it's some great still, some still with the, like, the postage mailer on it. Like it yeah. would come like this. So, Dude, so like awesome it had it. And then, you know, and then it's like, oh, cool. You open it up and it's got like, it's perfect. It's perfect. It's amazing. And, and the it would come in your mail. It was great. Yeah. The authors that I was exposed to, you know, uh, you know, Jim Bovard and Jim Bovard, you know, yeah. Anthony Gregory and, and just, you know, Lawrence oh, Vance. Uh, and I could just go on and on and on and on and on. Professor and, from Professor from Leola. Uh, yeah. Um, I'm Tom DiLorenzo. Tom DiLorenzo. Yep. Uh, yeah. Countless yeah, Jim, people. Jim yeah, Bovard, actually, uh, he wants to come on. He wants to come on the podcast sometime. I've already been talking to him. He's oh, really hell good. yeah. Oh yeah, hell he lives, yeah! He lives in Maryland too, so he's been following up on the Duncan Lemp case real well. He's been following everything. He's been following so that. He's great. Really, really well. Like I, yeah, and that's something that's lost in the sauce amongst all this COVID. Is he's Duncan probably like Lemp. one of the greatest investigative reporters that's left. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he still actually investigates. That's cool. Jim, let me let me let me respond to what you just said because it's it's music to my ears, and you have no idea how gratifying it is to hear you talk like that. Well, in, in, in this race, um, Judge Gray has accused me of being too radical. And uh, <laughs> isn't that always the critique of libertarians? That you're just, you know, these libertarians would be great if you weren't so libertarian. Well, right. I mean, that's the point is that I don't hold any views that are not libertarian. So what he's really doing is saying libertarianism is too radical. Yeah, right. That's exactly what he's saying. Yeah, I don't think he's like beating we, around the bush there. But he'll right. pop, he, he, let's invite him on the show to, to say that directly. I think we, we, we. But what's really funny is that last night in the, in the debate, the Kentucky Libertarian Party. Oh, and I probably should announce that that there's going to be another a third round of the Kentucky LP debates this Saturday, and Justin Amash himself has agreed to do that debate, and I will be in that debate. Ooh, Hell nice. yes! Nice. Justin, oh, wow. uh, I mean, uh, Vermin Supreme will be there. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's going to be your running mate. He's going to be your running mate. You heard it here <laughs> first. We, we consider you Vermin to be. But we, I, I got to tell you all what, what Jim Gray said last night, because, you know, you're going to get a kick out of this, Jim. He said, Hornberger should not be the nominee because he's going to shock people. <laughs> and then oh we, we can't shock people we've got to do things really soft pedaling we've got to make oh. it exactly the same as what they already know jim so i want to ask you when, when you started reading fff did i shock you no no i because i was already like thinking along these lines but i'd already been taught that government schools are important and that national security agencies are here to protect us. And I like, I had all the programming, right? But I knew it didn't make any sense. I just needed somebody that had done the research, that was able to help me break it down and confirm like what my instincts were telling me, but it just seemed like it didn't make any sense until you start, you know, like you just take one down and then the next one and then the next one and then the next one. And, and you look at all those articles in the FFF database, and I can't imagine there's a single government program that hasn't been disemboweled like over and over and over and over again. Um, and I use it for my own research still. Uh, like there's an article that I share, uh, Bart Frazier wrote about um, Hawk Mountain Sanctuary up here in Pennsylvania. This oh, private, yeah, up in their PA, yeah. Right, and it's one of my favorite places. Camp. 
And, uh, and it's a, such a, it's a perfect example of free market environmentalism. That's, that's spectacular. And, and he just did this great article about the history and that was like 12 years ago or something, but I still pull it up and I still share it with people because this topic still comes up. People say, well, we got to have the national parks with blah, blah, blah. You know, like, uh, <laughs> it's, I don't have the time. To, I don't have the time to do all of this. I just find the right article and I send it to him. Those booklets, yes. I've, I've given subscriptions yep. to family oh, members. I've put they're them great. in libraries. I've sent them to people <laughs> in jail. I've got them on the mailing yeah. list, like trying to like yes. just. Yes. Oh, and then when Occupy, the Occupy <laughs> movement came around, like, like the Ron Paul people wanted to go and kind of reach out to people. And they were kind of like, you know, we had all these like thousands of people were showing up and they're like, you know, we're all mad, but we don't know what's going on. And I, and I contacted you. I said, you got any of those booklets around or whatever? And you sent me this huge case of back issues. <laughs> and I got, and I had some DVDs that Ernie Hancock sent me and I stuck DVDs in the booklets and we would just go around and pass them out. Just I like, hey, you know, and then, and then, you know, I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't know how much it would be received, but there's just all these people were hanging around and everybody's mad and the banker bailouts were going down and, um, so, uh, but then I noticed people come back to me. It's like, oh, I noticed we got different books. What other ones do you have in there? And they wanted additional, like different, because there were different um, uh, months of the of the magazine that you had sent. So uh, I just I just thought, you know, th these just great materials to have around. So thank you for sending those. Well, no, it's music to my ears. I'd like to share with you my how I discovered libertarianism because it's it's very similar to what you're saying. That I I was just rummaging around the public library in Laredo of all things, a public library. And I see these four little books. Now I was a Democrat and, and I believe that government should be helping the poor. I was on the legal aid board of trustees as a lawyer uh, that provided free legal care for the, for the poor. I was the ACLU rep in Laredo as a lawyer. So I'm, I'm disillusioned with politics at this point. I was around 28. I go into the public library and I look for something to read and I go to the political science section and there's these four little book, different colored books on the lower shelf. So I pulled one of them out and they were called Essays on Liberty, volume one, two, three, and four. And I started thumbing through these things. And I mean, it was a road to Damascus experience. These were hardcore, pure, principled libertarian expositions. I mean, you know, Ludwig von Mises, Leonard Reed, uh, Frank Shodorov. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And I was just stunned. I was absolutely stunned. So when, when Judge Grace says, I'm going to shock people, I was shocked. But I tell you, it was a transformative event in my life. It changed the course of my life. If I had read, if those little books had said, we advocate health savings accounts and school vouchers and social security privatization and putting better people in charge of the regulatory commissions, I never would have been a libertarian. I mean, it was this, this pure principled message that real made me realize i am a libertarian right on and i also want to say about my authors i've been the luckiest guy in the world to have the best writers in the libertarian movement the ones that are not advocating reform because we we reform for us is a four-letter word we want to be free <laughs> and and if all you do is reform the, the the welfare warfare state you have not achieved freedom any more than reforming slavery would have meant slavery reform but i've got I've got authors like Richard Ebeling, uh, who's just heroic. I've known him since the, the 80s. Um, Lawrence Vance, Jim Bovard, just been the greatest friend 
that one could ever have. Sheldon Richmond did. Oh, great of course. Work. Sheldon. Yeah, yeah, Sheldon. Of course. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and then uh, Wendy McElroy. Oh, I mean, yeah. I, I, there's so, so many heavies. I mean, these are all like people that I just respect so highly and have enjoyed their so many of their writings that a lot of times it was my first exposure was in that booklet. Yeah. yeah they're, they're and, and just like what Jim was saying, it, it's so great, Jacob. Like, I love those booklets. And like I said, like, like my dad would just like give them to me like, hey, read this article. And he would highlight things in there. Like, I think you'd find this of interest. Um, but just like what Jim said, um, your archive, you can any debate you're having or any defense of libertarianism and 100% liberty, no compromise, 100% liberty. All the examples like Jim was talking about, you could just go through and just here, read this article as a alternative or just like look i don't want to debate you just read this maybe you'll come around to 100 percent liberty and and, and the way i thought were you gonna sorry the, the thing about it is is that my feeling is is that if you want people to start thinking about liberty then you've got to make the case for liberty mm -hmm. if all you do is make the case for school vouchers <laughs> then that's all people are going to think about. Oh, how we can we can improve the public schools? And okay, so Sharps come after me on the suicide thing. Let me go after him a little bit. He he's of course he's um, Gray's yes. vice presidential candidate, and they match up perfectly. I mean, it really is a good ticket because you know you go to to uh, Sharps' campaign website for governor, and he's got like these three thousand word white papers. I mean, he's got you know Elizabeth Warren has nothing on on Larry Sharp with all her plans. And Sharp's got all his <laughs> oh, Pocahontas. And, he, and he's got a 3,000 word white paper on how to make public schooling in New York work. Oh, wow. No. Oh, boo. Boo. Get out. Jacob Horner, drop it fire. How are people ever going to think about educational liberty if you don't make the case for getting government out of education? Yeah, right. uh, yeah, totally, man. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, unfortunately, we've uh, run out of time here. We've actually went like... Oh, no, 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 no. I'm not finished yet. <laughs> I'm not finished. You let... <laughs> talking, well, you there's listen. an after you show. Listen. Yeah, yeah we do an after show. hours program. If you if you want to like hang out on there, you're welcome to. God, time goes by faster and you're having a good time, guys. Yeah, if, right. you, wanna, yeah. if you want to join us in after hours, you're welcome to. Do you want to hang out in after hours? That's uh, that's where it's at. After Stay. hours is the yeah. So <laughs> yeah. continue, continue on. It's gonna uh, be awesome. Well, guys, I, I gotta tell you, it's been a real pleasure and an honor, and and it just hanging out with you all is like nirvana for me. <laughs> hey, uh, like awesome. Jacob, Jacob, what would you like to plug right now? Uh, JacobForLiberty.com. Come to our website. We need some donations. We need some support here. We got a tough campaign. I mean, we've done really well up to this point, but man, we're in the fight for our lives now with Amash jumping in this race with all the publicity and the hoopla. Yeah, hey, I think we just, we just need to get Amash on Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, she seems to be uh, a pretty good litmus test right now. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah. Okay. So uh, we also we have T-shirts over at libertariancountry.com. If you type in the code PRL, you'll receive a ten percent discount. If you spend fifty dollars or more and you use the code PRL two, you'll receive a twenty percent discount. This podcast is also brought to you in part by Conversations About Freedom podcast by Moral Bob. Until next time, live free or die. Drinking the flags and the tax bombs and red Voices by a few at the expense of the men
The violence of the state becomes obsolete! 